when I noticed that I was triggered, I was like, oh, cool. I'm going to go do a breathwork journey and see what this is actually about. Because it's not about the thing that I think it is. It's not about like whatever conflict we were going through or whatever work thing was coming up. Um, and almost every single time there is something that gets cleared or re-experienced from earlier on in my life. And it's such a, it's such a beautiful reminder also not to take the, the challenges in life too seriously mm. and to have some degree of like, you know, healthy distance from whatever's going on and to have in the back of my awareness of like time and time again, when I've been hijacked or triggered for some reason, and then gone, gone, gone into a journey or some kind of process and be like, oh, it's actually not about that thing. It's like mm-hmm. something completely different. Mm-hmm. And the more that you go through that, I think the more just trust builds up as well. And the more that there's almost like a sort of curiosity starts to come online about like, oh, like, I wonder why I'm feeling this like shame or, you know, whatever it is. And that's for me, that's such a enormous shift to the, the, the human that I was in my in my early 20s. Welcome to the Wild on Purpose podcast, a place for those deeply committed to knowing themselves and embodying their authentic purpose in the world. I'm your host, Kelly Wildmiller. In this show, we gather to discuss what it truly means to lead by our essential nature and uncage our greatest gifts so we may share them with others. We'll be exploring an expansive range of topics from health and healing, spirituality and consciousness, to relationships, work, and more. As we turn over many stones, we'll uncover a golden thread, inviting us to rewild our bodies and minds while awakening our souls and stepping more fully into our purpose. Thank you for being here, and please enjoy this wild conversation. Hello, wild ones. This very first episode is with none other than my beloved husband, Johnny Miller. In this conversation, Johnny and I put our partnership roles to the side and speak more so to his personal and professional rewilding journey, which includes growing up in a fairly repressed London society and schooling system, being initiated into the depths of loss and grief, experiencing burnout as a startup founder, and eventually giving himself over to his passions for travel, surfing, and self-exploration. By diving into modalities like breathwork, meditation, plant medicine, men's work, and nervous system regulation, Johnny created a life and career for himself that fosters full aliveness. In this conversation, we discuss the alchemical transformation that comes when we feel our grief fully, how to develop sensitivity to the way we feel on the inside, the different branches of breathwork and what he believes this modality can do for the world, and how following our deep curiosities can mean the difference between a tame and docile life or that which is wildly ours and brings us fully alive. Johnny has many things, including a nervous system researcher, clinical breathworker, and emotional resilience facilitator. But above all, he's a voracious student of life. If you're new to his work, head on over to the Curious Humans podcast after this episode and listen to the many incredible conversations that he's brought into the world as well. I love this man so deeply, and he is truly a beautiful teacher who really walks his talk and whose unique lens of the world is adding to the conversation of how we can thrive as individuals and in relationship with others. 
If anything resonates deeply with you as you're listening, please send me a message and let me know. Both myself and Johnny would love to hear it. So for now, Mr. Johnny Miller. Welcome, Johnny, to the Wild on Purpose podcast. It is an absolute honor to have you here as my very first guest. Mm-hmm. It's so lovely to be here. So I'd love to kick off the conversation with just a simple centering practice that we typically use in our partnership check-ins every weekend. And that is the four facets of wholeness, checking in with body, mind, emotions, and spirit. So how are you doing currently on these four levels? Mm, Okay. So Johnny checking in, mentally feeling... Alert, caffeinated, excited, stimulated. Um, physically feeling uh, pretty supple, pretty good, relaxed, grounded. Emotionally curious, intrigued, fairly calm and centered. And spiritually feeling aligned and in flow. Beautiful. Kelly checking in here. I'll do the same. So physically I am feeling a little creaky and tense in my neck and shoulder region, but overall feeling like I could move a bit this afternoon. Mentally feeling uh, that there's a lot that I'm tracking all at once, but there's a lot of excitatory in uh, energy in my mind. Emotionally feeling a little nervous, but very excited. Those two emotions are close to each other. And then spiritually, I'm feeling alive and guided and just like I'm on my path. So this episode means a lot to me for many reasons. It's the first real interview-based podcast I've ever done that I'll be sharing with the world. It's me coming back into this role as a podcaster. And it's me having a conversation with you, my partner, my husband, and the man that I've been spending the last two and a half years with. So thank you for helping me inch my way back into this sphere. And there's a lot of different directions that we could take this conversation. We could talk at length about partnership and our journey together, traveling the world and finally settling down in Boulder, what our future looks like and how we're co-creating life. However, for this first conversation, I really want to meet you on the level of the individual that is Johnny and also the professional in the work that you're doing in the world. How does that sound? That sounds great. Let's dive in. Excellent. So my very first question, and I anticipate this being a question I'll ask all of my guests, and the inspiration comes from your podcast of Curious Humans, and it is, as a child, were you particularly wild? (laughs) And if so, how? (laughs) Well, I love the question. Um, Was I wild? Was I wild? I think what, what comes to mind is there were definitely wild impulses, but they, they came through in a more vicarious way. So I had a wild imagination and I'd 
I mean, I'd go kind of mountain biking through the trees and the woodlands where I lived. But I think the, I think the wildness came through in a more, maybe more like rebellious and like anti-authoritarian way. I kind of rebelled against the strict rules that my school had and things that I considered to be, to be very silly. So it was almost like, um, maybe slightly unhealthy or maybe like a, a shadow version of, of wildness in some ways. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I think overall I had this sense of curiosity and adventure, um, that I, I feel like is very related to the desire to be wild. Um, although they're not entirely the same. Hmm. So this rebellious nature of yours, did it actually manifest out in the world in any way, or was this just purely the thoughts in your head? Um, I think it manifested as asking a lot of probably annoying questions to teachers at school and like wanting to know, like, why are we learning this? How does this thing work? And you know, you know, the ways that like the typical annoying kid will ask questions. <laughs> I think I was, I asked a lot. And then, and I think I did get into, I got into trouble at, at sometimes I got, got suspended from my, my high school at one point for just, um, I think, I think it, it was around having my top button undone. Mm. And, and this is the kind of school that I went to where if you didn't have your top button undone and your tie was an inch below your neck, mm. you got into trouble. And I just thought this was the most pointless thing. <laughs> so, Rightfully so. <laughs> I think I just got into, I didn't see eye to eye with some of the teachers, let's say. Okay. And you grew up in London. Yeah. Just North of London. Okay. Mm -hmm. And as you are kind of exploring your neighborhoods, I think you lived in more of like a suburban type neighborhood, you know, you're mountain biking in the forest and whatnot, mm -hmm. but you have all this energy inside of you as a young boy. Mm-hmm. Where is it being directed towards that? You talked about having a, a wild imagination. Mm. Were you a voracious reader? Were you into stories? Mm. Um, did you play characters or different things like that? Mm. Yeah, I think the um, physically it came through on the sports field, which is a kind of very contained environment for that sort of energy mm. through rugby and football and things like that. Um, but I think more so through the stories, kind of fantasy fiction that I was reading as a kid and through things like playing Zelda, which sounds silly, but I, it was a, a way for me to kind of vicariously feel the sense of like exploring new worlds and new landscapes and, and learning new things. Because mm -hmm. you couldn't necessarily go and do that in a big adventurous way. Yeah, because I was trapped in this like suburban <laughs> place that felt to me very sterile and that there wasn't this aliveness that I was hearing about through books or stories or, or Zelda. <laughs> yeah, well, as someone who played a lot of Zelda in her time as well, and this is one of the things we bonded over, <laughs> where we would just spend hours running the horse around and going, on going, the, fishing. going fishing and not even playing the game, but just like enjoying the world that they built. Yeah. Um, I can definitely empathize with wanting to have an outlet for that type of creative energy as a kid and not knowing what to do with it when you live in mm. like more of a suburban type experience. Mm -hmm. And especially if you're going to a school where you have to wear ties and you have buttons all the way up to your neck, I imagine there wasn't a ton of creative outlets mm. in school. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was very, um, very regimented and very kind of geared towards 
getting you good grades and thereby getting you a spot in one of like the top universities for us it's oxford and cambridge Mm -hmm. and there was this very kind of obsessive focus and anything that didn't contribute towards you getting these good grades wasn't really taken seriously Mm. so um if you think back to like six-year-old johnny and he's got all this energy he's creative he's a bit rebellious He's sort of living in these fantasy stories and these worlds, not as a means of escaping necessarily, but as a means of like discovering himself. Mm. What are some of the authentic attributes that you think he really embodied back then? Hmm. Yeah. The one that comes to mind really more than any is, is curiosity. And, uh, I remember there were a few books and atlases that I loved. I, I used to love spinning this globe that I had in my bedroom and kind of imagining what it was like in all the different continents in this place. And there was a, a Dorling Kindersley, I don't know if listeners remember this, but it was a, an atlas that had all kinds of interesting facts and figures and stories about, about the world, basically. Um, and I, I just enjoyed flicking through these. And, and I think it probably was some degree of escapism as well. I think it was, mm. it was like a healthy escapism. Um, and there were certain stories that I'd, I read at least kind of two or three times as well. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, the wizard of earthy was one of those stories. What drew you to reading it multiple times? Um, both the way, the beautiful language in, in, in which it was written and this, um, and I think I didn't really realize this until later, but I think I connected very much with the, the lead character, Sparrowhawk, who's this, this young kid who grows up in a village and realizes that he has these kind of uh, magical abilities and he's then brought to the isle of roke where he goes through this kind of wizarding school in a way that's quite like harry potter but in my opinion it's more um it's 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 very well done and then watch it (laughs) (laughs) continue i love harry potter deep yeah (laughs) um and he he ends up loosing this shadow out of his his arrogance on the island and then spends the the remaining three books kind of going on adventures afraid and running away from the shadow that he's loosed and then eventually having the courage to kind of turn around and face it head on and and call it by its name so he has this shadow and he re- like releases it mm-hmm. and it's out in the world yeah cause, causing chaos as as our shadows do yeah <laughs> so wow what a, a deep uh, like a storyline for a, a child to be absorbing yeah. there's this call to adventure this mythical magical sort mm. of way of being yeah and and also deep work of like meeting himself and integrating parts of him that he might have wanted to disown mm-hmm. but had eventually was forced to look back on and i've never actually read this mm. at all just your description sounds kind of like potent deep work for children <laughs> or at least priming you for that idea Definitely later in life. Some seeds, yeah, for sure. Yeah, interesting. Mm. So uh, curiosity is obviously a driving theme in your life. It's a really big word. You have a podcast called curious humans. Mm. Can you speak to what does the word curious even mean to you mm. and how do you relate to it now? Mm. Or how have you related to it throughout the years? Great question. I think initially I viewed curiosity as, as almost like, um, an escape route from the kind of the default path and the default way of 
viewing the world. Um, and, and it was also just this, like, almost, it was, you know, it's almost painful. Like if you have a question and, and you want to get that answer, there is this like deep discomfort and tension if that's not resolved. Mm. And so I think in some ways the curiosity almost like drove me and, <laughs> and that's kind of how it was almost like holding onto the, the tail of a dragon or something. And it's like pulling you in different directions. And so, and so I think that curiosity, if followed is an impulse that can lead to adventure, can lead to creativity. Um, so, so for me, maybe it's, and how I think about it now is almost like the impulse behind a kind of creative desire mm. and, and a desire to, um, to stay open-minded and to stay, uh, there's a willingness to be wrong. And I think also a humility that comes with curiosity as well. Mm. Yeah. Do you think everybody is born curious? I do. Okay. <laughs> what happens? <laughs> I, I think I only know a few people that I would actually describe as curious. So I haven't met many kids, if any, who I wouldn't consider to be curious. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that curiosity is something that gets trained out of us through schooling systems or mm -hmm. through parents for whom it's, it's challenging to be around, mm -hmm. you know, having their worldview questions. 55 times a day. <laughs> the kid is going, well, why? 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 Right. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> that kid's annoying. Yeah. It's but, annoying. It's... but if you actually go into his body and his mind and what he's curious about, totally. you realize he's just trying to explore and understand. Totally. And, and I think kind of going back to what I was talking about, the grading system at school, there is this, um, there's, we, we almost have this kind of praise of the right, like the right answer, like being correct, getting the, getting the grade, whatever it is, but it's, deprioritizing asking good questions mm. and i think the art of asking great questions and kind of honing one's curiosity is is something that we're all born with but it's something that i think has to be almost recovered like in later life as an adult once you're outside of these very constraining systems mm. well i would definitely say that a characteristic of being wild or being rewild mm. as a human is being curious mm -hmm. And I, I'm curious, I'm curious if along your journey, if you ever lost that sense of yourself, because mm -hmm. it sounds like you went to a really rigid schooling system mm -hmm. who had a, a motivation to sort of turn you into a certain type of person who would then go to a certain type of college, who would then get a certain type of job. Mm -hmm. And if curiosity isn't an ingredient in what that system believed would lead to success, mm -hmm. how is it that you held on to it? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> while wearing a tie and yeah. was it this rebellious nature inside of you yeah well i think i mean it definitely did get um repressed a lot for i'd say four or five years when i was at school um where i think there were just times when i was very tired very probably d depressed at certain at certain points as well um and i really just relied on you know things like computer games and books and stories to keep that vicariously alive mm. Um, and it wasn't really until after leaving school that I think it was able to kind of come out in full force again. Mm. So it really feels like curiosity is this inherent quality within you, this mm -hmm. energy that exists within you. And mm -hmm. it might lay dormant for a little while, but it will inevitably come back out. Mm -hmm. And ever since you've been out on your own, it sounds like you've been able to cultivate that and mm -hmm. express it in different ways that feel authentic to you. Mm -hmm. While not living under some type of 
external force or system that wants you to be a certain way. Yeah, totally. I, um, I, I guess in some ways it's, it's almost like a, it's like a spark of aliveness and the degree to which our external environment supports that spark to be, to be nurtured or to be kind of like the flame to be fanned mm. is, uh, it dictates our life to, to many degrees. So I ended up doing a, a kind of a, a long travel trip after school. It was like 11 months going through Australia and Southeast Asia, learning to surf and, um, yeah, that, that really like gave me permission to follow my curiosity again and, and being rewarded for that as well. Hmm. I think like being rewarded by beautiful conversations with strangers or seeing new places and getting that, I guess, like sense of wonder and awe, which I think is almost like an inevitable outcome from following your curiosity far enough. And you were how old on this 11 month trip? I was, I just turned 19 when I left. Wow. So you're in between kind of worlds. 19 Mm -hmm. is kind of 18, 19 Mm -hmm. or so is this liminal stage between Mm -hmm. adolescent years, doing what your parents told you to do, doing what the schooling system tells you to do. Mm -hmm. But then you're also most of the time going straight into another schooling system. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is a gap year, right? Which I think is a pretty common for as students in America, or I'm sorry, students in Europe to do. Mm -hmm. It's not so common for students in America to do that. So Mm -hmm. we go straight from high school into college. You might have that three month summer break, but it's from one system straight into another. And so my sense is that most American students don't get the chance to experience life for themselves and find themselves Mm -hmm. until they've already received that degree Mm -hmm. that they think is going to lead them in the path that works best for them. Mm. And then they have to go do some damage control. I'm speaking a little (laughs) bit from experience here. Um, But something that you just said that is so cool is you were rewarded for your curiosity through beautiful conversations with others Mm. or going to beautiful places. What is it about you that makes you realize that that's a reward? you know, like beautiful conversations with others, you're seeing that as Mm. like a positive gift or a reinforcement that yes, I'm on the right track. Mm. It's right for me to be this way. It's Mm. right for me to be curious. Does that feel like a, such a a nuanced, unique perspective on life? Yeah. Um, I, I think I, I feel very grateful and privileged in many ways to have had that 11 months kind of almost like an initiation to some degree. Like it was the first time where I, I flew to Australia on a one-way ticket on my own. And I felt like I was kind of a a sovereign being also with freedom to explore wherever I desired. And I had this kind of container of time of 11 months before going to university and like going back into like quote unquote the real world. Mm. But it was this like 11 month sandbox where I I decided to learn to surf and I decided I wanted to see these different places and really I think finding out who I was and what I cared about for the first time. And I think mm-hmm. part of that was, you know, realizing that having conversations with fellow travelers or, or locals just for the sake of it felt really good. And it was interesting. And I remember going to Vietnam and um, seeing some like, like bullet holes in the walls from, from the, from the war and, and the Khmer Rouge regime. And I never cared about history at school, but like seeing the, like this actually happened mm-hmm. and being in the place and being immersed in the, 
the people who'd been affected by this. Like it was so fascinating. But the way history had been taught had been through the lens of facts and figures and dates and mm. things like that. And so there was this like um kind of reinvigoration of a lot of things because I, I got to I got to see the results like like there and then. Mm. I love that. And it reminds me of what Francis Weller, the um, soul psychotherapist, speaks about of primary satisfaction mm. versus secondary satisfaction. And that primary satisfaction is what really matters to our soul and to the deeper currents mm. of our life. It's what really makes a, a quality life. Mm. And that's um, integration with nature. It's like finding our spot in the, the more than human world, as mm. Bill Plotkins would say. It's connection with other humans, good mm. conversation, you know, he also goes on to say art and beauty and these other things, um, versus secondary satisfactions, which might be watching TV or shopping or many of the other things that mm. can fill our time or even to some degree working in school, depending mm. on our motivation to be there. Mm. So it sounds like at a young age at 19, you had a pretty decent chunk of time to be immersed in mm. primary satisfaction, curiosity, and by having a container set of 11 months and it's like a canvas, like a blank canvas that you mm -hmm. got to paint with your own colors and mm -hmm. nobody's there telling you, well, you can only use the red and the blue. <laughs> You're like, no, I'm going to use the whole canvas. I'm going to yeah. use the whole paintbrush set here mm. and do something that's authentically radically mine. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love that distinction of primary and secondary satisfaction. And I think for me, um, learning to surf in Australia was like looking back on it. Now I realized that was my, my outlet for so many aspects of that primary satisfaction, like being in the ocean, watching sunrise and sunset, making friends in the waves, being mm. present to the moment, challenging myself, finding states of flow, finding my edge, getting out of my comfort zone. And, and that then almost became the, um, the lens through which I traveled through in the following months. Like I went to Indonesia because I heard there were these mythical waves on these lost island of, of the, the Banyak islands and the Mentawais. And it just, it felt like something from, you know, like, like a, a story. And I was like, wow, I get to live this and I get to find these secret surf spots. Mm. Um, and so surfing then became the thing that I was, it, it was my reason, my excuse to travel to places that were maybe more off the beaten track than the typical kind of touristy places. Mm-hmm. Good thing you've cultivated all that sense of adventure by playing Zelda and running around on the horse. Totally. It was like real life Zelda. I was like, I, I, I remember one point I was on a, on a scooter with my surfboard, like going down, dodging chickens, dodging potholes, following directions from a local to this mythical secret surf spot that he told me about. <laughs> it's like, this is like a computer game. <laughs> so how do you think that that experience altered the, trajectory of your life mm, in so many ways in so many ways i think um as i'm sure you know from traveling there is a lot of there's a lot of kind of spare time and spaciousness to just think and ponder and let your let your mind run and i did a lot of journaling and writing and reading and just um yeah, just that, that kind of sense, that full sense of urgency that I think we have when we're young at school to kind of pursue the, the path or the treadmill, whatever it is. I just, I had this spaciousness. And in that, um, 
both learning to surf and the love of travel. Um, I mean, that then went on to be, I started a travel magazine at university and then from there a travel startup with my two good friends. And we then continued traveling and building this startup for the next five years. So it really did directly influence uh, my career path at the time. Mm -hmm. And, and just gave me that, um, I, I suppose also like a sense of, uh, a very positive view of humanity and kind of, mm. um, believing in the value of, of kindness and like the kindness of strangers was something that I think I took away from it as well. Mm. Times when like I lost my stuff or I was just, I needed a place to stay and time, time after time, strangers would come and just like offer me things for no reason like right now the house we're staying in is a, a friend that we've never even met and we're staying in his house that's and it's true. just like it's it's such a uh I, I think that's that was really cultivated like during my travel as well mm. i'll just comment on that since it's our present moment reality of being in this house and then I, i'll go back in time but uh it seems like and this has been my experience and it's been amplified since being with you is once you believe that humans are good and that mm -hmm. you're always going to be taken care of and that everything is actually fine mm -hmm. and you kind of get out of that false urgency to figure it all out, it's like you create space for the universe or whatever we all believe in mm -hmm. to bring you things that you could never have anticipated, mm -hmm. whether it's a stranger who's offering you a sandwich or <laughs> this house, which... Like you said, we don't even know the guy who owns this house mm. and yet we're staying in it while they're at Burning Man mm. and he's a filmmaker and there's four Emmys <laughs> on the mantelpiece in the <laughs> downstairs and we're just surrounded by this inspiration from these incredible humans mm. and we couldn't have foreseen this, nor could we have bought our way into it or strategized our way into it. It mm. simply had to come and meet us. Mm. That's one point also I think about traveling is that there are certain experiences which no amount of money can buy you and, and certain kind of places and conversations, which are almost like wealthy beyond measure. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So this brings me back to this concept of rewilding and being in our wild state. And one attribute of, of the wild is living in harmony with the greater ecosystem and mm. being playing your part in the wider web of things. Mm. And I think for travel, it's a really great example where some people will go and, you know, they'll do the all expense paid plug in. Here's your itinerary. And I used to be a concierge. So I used to literally plan people's mm. vacations from start to finish. Mm. And it was amazing to see them come in stressed and leave stressed. Mm -hmm. And at no point did they actually get to sink into the serendipities of being in a new place in a new environment and meeting themselves mm. in new ways. And part of this rewilding process is also learning how to trust mm. and surrender and just go more with the flow. And as you're speaking to, when you do that, especially when you have 11 months mm. and you can really get into that other flow, mm. um, miracles happen or just mm. things you could not have anticipated or paid your way into. Mm. Totally. Um, what comes to mind for me is, is that there's almost a trade-off between efficiency and curiosity mm. and the types of people that you were maybe planning trips for, 
they, you know, maybe they had only two to three weeks holiday a year. And so they'd want to be as efficient as they could with that time. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think it's very hard to be genuinely curious and genuinely surrender into the flow of things if you're on that kind of very restricted kind of time budget. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there was this, I guess, like a wealth of time uh, that I had when I was 19. And uh, one of the writers I used to look up to, still do look up to, Rolf Potts, he's, he kind of has this idea of time equals wealth and how someone could be earning six figures a year, but if they, they only have two weeks holiday, then in many ways they're, they're time poor and they're, you know, they're poor. Mm. Like they don't actually have the time to enjoy that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that. And so it feels like you cultivated a lot of this curiosity, saw the world in a new way, met different cultures and met yourself, mm-hmm. went back, started a travel magazine, then this travel startup called Maptia. Mm-hmm which is super cool. And it still exists online today with these beautiful travel stories with gorgeous photography, long form storytelling as well. And somehow through all of this, you eventually found your way to being a nervous system researcher and a breathwork facilitator. And so can you help to connect the dots a little bit between (laughs) all of those experiences and how you've arrived at your current day profession? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's about 10 years there of, of dots to connect. Yes. So, but I think the, yeah, level. I think the main, the main dots that were kind of pivotal moments for me were, uh, let's see, about five and a half years after starting this company mapped here. Um, I remember waking up one morning, we were in Morocco at the time, which was a, a beautiful, you know, beautiful place living by the sea in Tagazut and just feeling kind of apathetic and, um, burnt out and uninspired and that I just like, um, I'd lost the thread. I kind of lost my motivation for doing what I was doing. And so I ended up, um, making the difficult decision to part ways with my two co-founders that way. And, uh, yeah, I didn't know what I was going to do. It was this kind of like loss of identity. I'd been the startup founder. That was the thing that I held on to. It was the thing that I, you know, my friends were also in the startup community. Um, but from there I transitioned into teaching entrepreneurship and working with other people who were in some ways like lost or they'd, they'd maybe been doctors or lawyers, but found that that career path wasn't for them. So they were also in this liminal space and trying to figure out what to, what to do with their lives. And then, um, about three, three or four years later, um, probably the most, impactful moment or experience of my life was, uh, my, my partner at the time, um, Sophie, uh, ex fiance, she suffered from bipolar disorder. And one morning when I was in, I was away in Portugal, she was working as a a junior doctor and she had an anxiety attack at work. And because there was no one left in the house, she, she came back and overdosed on her own medication and took her own life. And this, um, this experience and the grieving her loss was, was really the kind of crisis or portal that then obliterated a lot of what I thought I knew back then and kind of sent me on this trajectory that has now led me to researching the nervous system and practicing breath work and and these kinds of things. Mm. Thank you for sharing. Mm. Uh, 
Yeah. Uh, I feel really moved every time we talk about Sophie and every time you share the experience of going through that, losing the love of your life at the time. And, and in some ways, a little needlessly, right? This, this chemical imbalance in her brain mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. then taking her own life in a moment of high stress, mm -hmm. uh, and what that must have done mm -hmm. to you, to your guys' community, your family, the life that you had built at that point. Mm -hmm. And just from what I do know, having been your partner now for the last two and a half years, and, um, it seems like one of the, I guess, major gifts of that phase was meeting the emotions head on mm -hmm. and really meeting the moment for what it was mm -hmm. and fully experiencing it. Mm -hmm. And so I'd love if you could share a little bit kind of about what you shared in your TEDx talk in 2019 called the gifts of grief. Mm -hmm. One of the quotes that you, that you have from that talk is, I believe grief is the price we pay for having let ourselves be deeply seen by another. Hmm. And it reminds me of this idea by Martin Prechtel, that Mayan shamanic elder who writes grief as praise. Mm -hmm. um, so there's two threads that are alive for me here. One is this idea that uh, there are gifts in grief, there are gifts in loss. Mm. Um, and also there is a transformation that takes place when you really allow yourself to be obliterated mm. by an experience, like you said. And so whatever feels alive for you in this moment, I'd just love to hear it. Mm. Thank you, firstly. And yeah, I, I mean, I, I think what I, I've shared this before, but I remember seeing, uh, adults, parents, um, people who'd lost someone close to them, whether it was a, a mother or, or a good friend. And you could almost, you could almost see the unprocessed grief kind of on their faces. And it, it caused this, this numbness, this lack of wildness, this lack of aliveness. And I think this, <clears throat> this kind of apathy towards life was something that I was was very scared of. You know, in some ways, it's the opposite of curiosity. It's this this numbness, um, and so and I I had enough self awareness to know that I wasn't particularly connected to my body or my emotions at all. You know, being male, being British, <laughs> I didn't have the the odds weren't in my favour. Let's say, and so I I kind of decided although i don't know if i really had a choice to turn towards this pain and, and these feelings head on and to attempt to to feel them um you know in the effort to not become one of these bitter resentful um like old people <laughs> and <laughs> that was the image i had in my head and initially that that meant uh i signed up for a vipassana meditation retreat in Herefordshire, um, just a couple of months after she, after her memorial, um, which felt very soon, but it was, it was one of those things where I'd been accepted. Those were the dates. I was like, okay, I'm just going to go. I'm just going to do this. <laughs> and, and then after that, the, in the following months, um, plant medicine ceremonies, uh, taking time to visit 
places that were very meaningful to both of us and that felt like they were imbued with a sense of her spirit. Um, in particularly the, the, the Brighton coastline and, and the ocean and swimming in the, the freezing water was somewhere that I, I think I really allowed myself to feel and process a lot of what I'd been holding from, from that and, and from the pain and from the kind of like, just the, the tragic loss of um, someone with so much life force and so much like potential just kind of, mm. yeah, not getting to, not getting to live a full life. Mm. Wow. Thank you for sharing. I imagined, uh, you know, that grumpy old man from up. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I imagined him because I'm yeah. pretty sure his wife Mr. dies. Fried- Mr. Friedrichson. <laughs> yeah. And he's just this grumpy, bitter old man who you know goes on a wild adventure anyway but i know mm. i know what you mean we mm. you and i are doing a lot of work in this chapter of our life to reconnect with our emotions and to come back alive and that's it's incredibly um foreign territory you mm. know a lot of us weren't raised to fully express and feel the vast spectrum of emotions that humans have mm-hmm. we were told like be happy or or be quiet Mm-hmm. You know, and if there's anything other than happiness, either don't express it or do it away from other people, mm-hmm. creating this shame feedback loop and suppression mm-hmm. about feelings or emotions. Mm-hmm. And and I know from my own experience that grief, it's like one of the big three. It's like there's like anger, grief, and um, shame seem to be kind of those three big heavy ones that mm-hmm. are confusing to feel. And they also, these wild animals that can't totally control when they arise or come. Mm -hmm. So not having been modeled how to feel your emotions fully, how to feel grief fully, Mm -hmm. how did you know how to go and do these things to feel your grief? And, uh, how did you feel, um, like safe enough, I guess, to do that? Mm Hmm. Yeah, I think the, the honest answer is that I didn't know. And that was partly why it was scary. There wasn't a roadmap. There wasn't a, an elder <laughs> kind of guiding the way. Um, I think again, I was, I was kind of drawn by, I had this curiosity or this inkling of like, Oh, this Vipassana thing sounds interesting. Um, let's maybe use that as a starting point and, and see what happens. And I think some, some of the turning points for me were, sitting in my first plant medicine ceremony, which was my first kind of experience with a real ceremony. Mm-hmm. And, um, in the morning after we've kind of drunk the ayahuasca and everyone's had their experience, um, everyone's sober, but the, the depth to which people shared some deeply personal things with, you know, 15 people who were strangers the night before mm-hmm. and the, the vulnerable emotional expression that was present in that space. It almost like gave me permission to kind of begin to do the same thing in a kind of very measured way mm. where I was still probably censoring what I was sharing, but it, there was more there and there was more safety and more trust. And I think once that, like that kind of crack opened, the kind of the tributary, the, the tributary started uh, flowing and more unfolded from that place. Mm. I love that. And I think one of the main things you touch on there is the importance of being surrounded by community 
during big life moments or or just all the time, really, but having safe and sacred places for us to go to, to really express Mm. and be seen and witnessed and not abandoned in that moment. And in fact, encouraged and loved and celebrated Mm. for fully expressing. Mm. Um, It reminds me of my first ayahuasca retreat when I was late twenties, it was 2018 and same, same experience, the sharing circle the next day when you're sober, those of us who were brand new to the experience, you could tell we're a little reserved, had no experience authentically sharing vulnerably in a group of strangers. Mm -hmm. And at this point you don't even feel like strangers really. And then people who, who've been in plant medicine ceremonies for many, many times and their level of embodied sharing ability to go to hard places Mm. to wail in front of us to slam their fists down and rage Mm. and to really express Mm. it was like witnessing a different type of human Mm -hmm. a more alive and real type of human Mm -hmm. not and then i realized oh i've been feeling like a robot (laughs) this whole time Mm -hmm. emotions are beautiful Mm -hmm. they're a natural part of us they're not this thing to be afraid of or to suppress Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, like you say, it is beautiful to witness someone else or even ourselves in that authentic expression. And we can tell that there's something that some part of us can tell the difference when someone's like in story and they're putting on a show for some reason Hmm. versus someone who is deeply feeling and allowing that, that primal energy, whether it's grief or anger or whatever it is to move through them. Um, yeah, there's just something in us that can like, tell the difference and it feels it's incredibly compelling and and Mm. beautiful in a way and and on that it's also a journey to get there right Mm -hmm. um i know that stepping into some type of performative expression might be a a valuable stepping stone on the way to getting to the place Mm. where you can just let it go Mm -hmm. let it rip Mm -hmm. um at least you're trying and it's uncomfortable. (laughs) You know, it's that kinked hose of how do I do this? And in the process of unkinking, it becomes more natural and free flowing. Uh, Yeah. On the topic of grief, what I, what I really have admired in you and it's been such a gift knowing you in this chapter of your life Mm. and knowing the gifts that you've experienced through grieving Sophie actually helped me prepare for the grief of losing my dad, of him dying, and also knowing how to support myself better in that process. And I think grief looks different for everybody. We experience it differently. You and I just realize that within ourselves. And um, it is this wild energy that wants to emerge whenever it chooses to. (laughs) Um, But some of the core pillars of experiencing grief or really any strong emotion that I've learned is really helpful to the healing process and integration of loss is creating space to fully feel like fully go into the emotion, uh, let it overwhelm you if it needs to. Mm. And, and also creating space to be seen and witnessed in that there's something else that happens in the process of being seen by another when you're, expressing grief when you're in loss Mm -hmm. versus just sitting in a bedroom by yourself Mm -hmm. telling yourself, Oh, it's fine. I'm, I'm fine. It's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, so I first want to just say thank you for, for being in my life and having that TEDx talk and putting your story out there in this way, cause it is edgy and it's not the standard, 
approach to loss is to find the love and the beauty and the gifts in it. Mm. Um, and what that reminds me of actually is this idea of pre-tragic versus post-tragic and someone who hasn't fully felt grief, but says, Oh, it's fine. This is a, there's silver linings in this. It's okay. Mm -hmm. Is actually probably bypassing their, their experience Mm. versus someone who's gone in fully felt it and has emerged on the other side with the gift. Mm. And that person might be able to say this, this is such a beautiful experience, but it's different. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you could actually speak to that a little bit of what was it like to actually go all the way through Mm. the feeling of grief and come out the other side. Mm. Mm. So I think firstly, it's, it's worth saying that it was very much a surprise to me that there were these, these gifts from this process. I think when I was in it, there was still a lot of, um, it's just fear and just like, I couldn't make sense of what happened. And so there was a, still a sense of lostness throughout this. Um, but one, there were, there were actually several moments where I think I, I allowed myself to surrender more deeply to the pain that was there. Um, one of them that comes to mind was, visiting her memorial bench at this place called Leo Sands on the southwest or southeast coast of, of England. And I remember walking on this like this like marshy ground and seeing her bench in the distance and there's no there's really no humans around for a few miles. And I just felt this like welling and this deep surge of energy in me. And every step that I walked closer to the bench, it kind of grew and grew and grew in intensity and I eventually got there and it felt like this tsunami that had been within me that had almost been like working up until this point was just released and poured through me. And I was on my hands and knees crying, uh, crying my eyes out and and wailing and, and making all these sounds. But at a certain point, there was this feeling of like, like deep peace and, and almost like bliss and rapture which, which honestly shocked me at the time. I was like, I didn't expect to feel this as I was going into this experience. But, um, there's a, there's an image that Dante has in one of, I think it's the the divine comedy where, um, there's this idea of nine layers to the, the icy lake of hell. And at the bottom layer, the bottom of the, the lake bed, there's this trap door into heaven and into bliss. And it was almost like that. It was almost like I'd been free diving through this increasingly painful, icy water until I got to this point where there was just this like, like rapture, honestly, and this sense of connection and love. Um, and it was just, a a very unexpected, but beautiful experience. Mm. And, and since then, I think I started to, um, I think like as my emotional kinks were kind of ironed out, I started to associate the feelings of grief as being very similar to the feelings of, of love mm. and the actual <clears throat> physical sensations in my, in my body and my heart were very similar. This kind of like this warmth, this aliveness, this rawness, this, this vulnerability. Um, and so I, I think my relationship to grief changed over those kind of three or four years. Mm. Uh, something this reminds me of is, 
I'm not sure who created this, but there's like five stages of grief, allegedly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Elizabeth Kubler Ross, Kubler Ross. Potentially. I'm not sure what her name is. Yeah. And I, I'm going to want to look them up here in a moment, but I'm actually just going to do that. Everyone can, let's receive a breath. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This, uh, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And it sounds like those first four of denial, anger, bargaining, and depression, at least the way I'm now experiencing grief, don't actually have to fully exist. Mm-hmm. You don't have to go through them. Mm-hmm. That's almost like you're resisting reality and you're resisting the feelings that are trying to move through you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if you could speak to that a little bit of, and, and did you experience the five stages of grief mm. or did you just go straight to the end or mm. what was your dance with that? Like, <laughs> yeah. So I think I, I agree with you. And I think that those five stages for me, that almost ways in which the energy of grief can be kinked depending on our particular like personality structures or kind of preconditioning. Um, so to kind of go with the first one, denial, um, I think that it's, it's also a very healthy response. And we've kind of talked about this before that there are certain times, particularly in the beginning where it does feel too overwhelming to go into what's there. Mm-hmm. And so our body does have this like protective mechanism and this way of, um, being like, like you can just continue to function like for now and you'll get to feeling the things later. And that's actually as healthy. Um, and then. I think one that I did experience was, um, was, was regret in that or, or bargaining perhaps. Bar- bargaining. Yeah. I, I didn't have bargaining, but what I do remember experiencing was a sense of, um, fear that I had somehow given Sophie permission to, to do what she did mm-hmm. and ways in which I wish I'd kind of showed up differently before that. And that was a real, that was a, that was really sticky for me. And it wasn't until I shared those out loud and shared, shared those thoughts and feelings with her family that then, who then said, you know, don't be ridiculous <laughs> mm. that I was like, Oh, like it's okay. And that was almost like a permission slip to then go deeper into the pain. And, and so in some ways I think that was, that was a story that was protecting me from actually then feeling the pain of her not being there so much. Mm. And so I think we do go through these, these layers of, of resistance or these protection mechanisms that arise that keep us from feeling the, the depths of whatever the loss entails. And it could be a person. It could also be, you know, other, other things in our life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This, this speaks a lot to what I've been experiencing with the death of my father and, and the like grief has kind of felt like this soup of like a, it's a lot of different things happening all at the same time. Mm -hmm. And one of them for me was regret. As I was grieving my dad, there was this unique flavor of regret of, I wish I showed up differently over the last couple of years. I wish I could have told him that I loved him more. Mm -hmm. You know, I wish it could have been different in his last three weeks when I was there with him and yada, yada, yada. And at some point when I was sitting with that, I was like, it's not really about my dad in this moment. It's actually about me in this moment. And I had to work through that so that I could turn back to my dad and like fully feel and grieve 
him. But the more I did that, the more I, like you said, I touched love. And at times I touched joy. Like just so grateful. I got to know this guy. And even though it wasn't a perfect relationship by any means, it was more of like this soul level gratitude. Mm. And also once I, yeah, once I think I fully accepted, like he's gone, he <laughs> is gone. Um, a peace emerged with that too. Mm. And a new type of relationship, uh, where now I get to have a relationship with more of like the energetics of a father mm. in some ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, just to touch on that. Um, there's a sense of, uh, say this? I lost my train of thought. <laughs> that's okay. Something that's top of mind for me right now is, um, this idea of asking the emotions to come back later. Mm. Uh, grief mm -hmm. being, uh, grief being the mm -hmm. alive one right now in this conversation. But mm -hmm. I, I really would love your perspective on, you know, we've said it a few times, the kinking of the hoses mm -hmm. and emotional fluidity. Like, what are these things mean? Mm -hmm. And is it okay to compartmentalize part of your emotions so that you can tend to them later? Cause mm -hmm. right now I have to work. I have to, I have to have a podcast conversation. Like, I don't, I don't have time mm -hmm. to just be overwhelmed by grief right now. Come mm -hmm. back later. Um, can we do that? Is that healthy? Or if grief is knocking at the door right now, do I stop what I'm doing and fully feel? Mm. What's your perspective? Yeah. So, so that actually reminds me of what I was going to share, which, which was that I remember feeling guilty and even some degree of shame around feeling like happy at certain times. And I had this story that, you know, when you're in grief, you have to be like sad and somber and, and, and how, but like organically there were these other emotions that wanted to come through and I was, you know, back then I, I almost like pushed that side down because I was like, oh, that doesn't, you know, that's not what we're meant to do when, when we grieve. And, um, and I really think that my journey since then has been almost giving myself greater permission to, um, express the full spectrum of human emotions almost, almost in any environment. Um, and and kind of getting comfortable with that through, for me, it's been through breathwork circles and through plant medicine and through our partnership. Um, but it really has been like a, a relearning or maybe an, an unlearning to feel comfortable and, and I guess feel loved in those expressions. Mm, feel accepted mm -hmm. and that it's okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to, okay. I'd love to dig into this a little bit more. Um, this idea that we have this full spectrum of emotions within us, mm -hmm. a wide capacity. And I think Brene Brown outlines a lot of them in her new book, Atlas of the Heart, mm -hmm. which she's trying to educate people like, Hey, we have more than three emotions, <laughs> like, we have more than just happy, angry, sad. Mm -hmm. There's a, there's all these nuances to it. And the more, um, we develop an emotional language or emotional dictionary in a way mm -hmm. and, and get to understand each of them, the more freedom we have to express. Mm -hmm. uh, so on one hand, why do we want to do that? Like, why is that actually really important for us as individuals and collectively? Mm -hmm. And then what are some of your 
uh, favorite ways that you've discovered so far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that. Um, we have a a friend and mentor, Rick Smith, who who likes to say that he compares emotions to crayons in a box, and that we have certain crayons we like to play with, and certain crayons <laughs> that we just never really touch. Let's say it's like purple or. For me, it's like turquoise. <laughs> um, and so I, I think the process is like inviting us to put those crayons back into the box and to, and to use them more. And so what are some ways of doing that? Um, I, I think seeing it modeled is actually really helpful and like seeing others who are more, may, maybe more embodied or more comfortable with certain flavors that might be on your edge. Mm. Um, and for me, <clears throat> breathwork has been like a, like a dojo or an arena for practicing that and almost deliberately working with a certain emotion, whether it's shame and anger have been two big ones for me and kind of going in with the intention to feel and express and, and learning to do so without being, without being in the head and without being stuck in story. I think when I was younger, I would, I would intellectualize emotions. Um, but what I'm learning is the actual physical sensation and embodiment of these feelings and how to move my body in such a way that these energies are released and expressed in the way that they, they want to. Mm -hmm. And where are these energies coming from and why do they need to be expressed? Can you help break this down a bit more? Where are they coming from? That I don't know. <laughs> well, I guess, um, why are they, why are they there? So, um, I, I think there's maybe, maybe this is a good place to talk about kind of incomplete reflexes and, and traumas and things like that. Let's do it. Okay. Okay. So, um, when something intense happens to us during life, if we're, if we're unable to fully, um, feel or complete that experience in the moment, our body will kind of buffer it and store it for later. Mm. Uh, so, uh, one example that I think is really easy for everyone to get is, uh, there's a video on YouTube. If you search Impala shaking on YouTube, I think it'll come up where an Impala is chased by a lion and almost dies, but breaks free and then goes behind a bush and starts shaking mm. and shakes for you know, maybe 10, 15 minutes and then gets up and it's fine. And, uh, this kind of, uh, completion uh, and, and kind of completion of this mobilization energy is something that humans have as well. Like we are mammals, we have the same impulse. And so when we're in a state of fight or flight and we're unable to express or release that energy in some way, it gets stored in our nervous system and kind of buffered for later. Um, and so that is, I think, what often we're tapping into when we go into any kind of somatic based work, whether that's breath work or somatic experiencing or hokaimi, we're kind of accessing this subconscious bank of embodied memories and allowing them to come up to the surface and be released and completed. And when this happens, there is usually a, a, a large kind of cathartic release and a sense of more freedom, more spaciousness, more aliveness. Um, and if we, on the other hand, if we don't do this and we kind of keep living stressful lives and um a number of things can happen one of them is what we typically call burnout which is uh technically speaking it's dorsal vagal sh a dorsal shutdown where it's almost like the fuse in our 
nervous system just gets tripped and we just go into collapse. It's like the, the freeze response. Um, or we're just increasingly reactive. Maybe we're, we get angered easily. We're very, we have fragile nervous systems. Mm. And so the more of this emotional debt that we accumulate throughout our lives, the more fragile our nervous systems become and the harder it is to live authentically and live creatively as well. Mm. Wow. So in the spirit of Rick Smith and mm -hmm. what we learned in his retreat, his awakened leadership retreat in Bali, let's just go ahead and take receive all of us, those who are listening as well, just receive two breaths. So I'll probably end up doing this on my podcast quite a bit. And what, what I appreciate about being able to stop and take these breaths is one, like you just spoke for quite a bit of time and, uh, I'm witnessing you right now and there's energy moving through your body and we're sitting on the floor and we're stretching and we're moving around. And both of us are kind of getting a little physically fidgety, I think mm -hmm. in these uh, sitting positions and also the listeners just received a lot of really great information. And so taking these moments to pause and let things land and integrate feels really important. Um, and also buys me a little bit of time to know exactly how I want to respond. Ah, you know, it's so interesting how life unfolds. And I come from a, a complex trauma background, a family with alcoholism and divorce and various, uh, like more relational and developmental issues, definitely lowercase T trauma in most of the cases versus like big, acute, massive traumas of war or violence, things like that. Um, thinking of it more as like these adverse experiences that just build up over time. And it's been such a blessing being a partner of yours and learning more about the nervous system. And I think up until probably about a year ago, I didn't even think twice about it. Like, what do you mean the nervous system? I don't really know what to think about it. How does it affect me? Why should I care? Um, and you mentioned some different states like dorsal, dorsal vagal, um, fight or flight, parasympathetic. So can you just give like a, a quick high level overview of like what the nervous system is, what it's, what it does for us mm -hmm. and, um, why we should care. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sure. Um, so as a starting point, I like to think of the nervous system as the lens through which we're experiencing reality. Mm -hmm. So in, in any moment, we're not, we're, we're kind of taking in sensory input through our eyes, through our ears, through touch. And we're interpreting that through the current state of our nervous system. So that might be, might be energized. It might be vibrant or it might be kind of more relaxed or it might be panicky. And we will interpret the world around us based on these nervous system states. And so why does that matter? Um, well, well, I think firstly being aware that the state of our nervous system is influencing our perception of reality and other people and other situations mm. is really good to be aware of. And then really importantly, being, um, feeling empowered to have a set of, of practices or ways to 
to shift your nervous system or downregulate if you're feeling, let's say you're feeling really stressed or anxious or, or, or worrying about something like having certain practices that you can engage with to downregulate and calm your nervous system can be really freeing and really empowering. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, I mean, the state of our nervous system really does dictate the, our capacity to pay attention. Like when we're in fight flight, our attention is very narrowed. It's harder to listen. Um, our mind is probably racing, um, uh, versus say, say right now, we're probably in a blend of ventral vagal, which is this kind of, um, tendon befriend social engagement state where we're able to kind of pick up on each other's cues and body language and facial expressions and, and think more abstractly and creatively. Um, with some sympathetic activation, which gives us the energy to, uh, to share and to kind of speak from a place of excitement and aliveness. Mm. And, and the, the state of flow is, um, this is getting a bit technical, but the state of flow is, is like high sympathetic activation with a high degree of ventral vagal, which is the sense of safety and groundedness mm. and we're in our bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so really, uh, kind of building this, I think of it as like nervous system literacy helps us to it's another lens through which to understand ourselves and to ultimately i think show up in a more intentional way so that we can align the state of our nervous system with whatever the environment is is asking from us like like right now we kind of aligned in a certain way um and and when people get into these places of of reactivity it's usually their nervous system is out of alignment with whatever the situation is is asking so if you if you think of a friend who you, know, you ask them a simple question and they like bite your head off. Mm. It's like, that seems like it was a disproportionate reaction mm. to my, to the stimulus of my question. <laughs> and, and chances are that there's, there's something else going on under the surface in their nervous system that is leading to that mm. kind of outsized response. So cool. And this actually feels, although a lot of things to learn becoming literate in this language, um, how empowering mm-hmm. that we have more control over our reactions, our state of being, totally. our well-being than yeah. we initially ever thought. Mm-hmm. So I, I think when you first started in this work, you had this quote of like, we're not just a brain on a stick, <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. know, which is how a lot of people walk around <laughs> and this like default mode, this, this, these conditionings, mm-hmm. these programs, mm-hmm. um, that kind of live in our nervous system. Uh, we actually have the ability to consciously start to change them, but mm-hmm. it takes awareness or as one of the principles that you teach interoception. Mm. Um, but just to kind of bring it back and tie a, a bow on what I said before, um, yeah, let's use me in a, as an example. So I had some challenging experiences early in life. And then I think because I'm just more of an empathic human, I absorbed a lot of the energy around me in ways that other people maybe other kids, it would, it would bounce right off of them, mm-hmm. but I was always very sensitive. I took things, I took like everything personally. If someone gave me a weird glance in the cafeteria, like, oh my God, I'm, <laughs> I'm crying about it for days. So I just took so many things personally. Mm-hmm. And as an adult, you know, I noticed that there's a lot of tension. There's a lot of uh, propensity towards stress and anxiety and quick reactivity. Um, defensiveness Mm -hmm. and various, yeah, just mood imbalances or things like this. So what is it about our childhood 
that and and how we develop as people mm. um that informs how we show up later in life as adults mm. and maybe you could integrate this idea of these incomplete reflexes and how maybe some of those begin mm. while we're in childhood and mm. I'll stop there. <laughs> <laughs> so many questions. Mm. Yeah. I mean, we could spend multiple podcasts, I think, talking about this. Sure. And we will over um, time. Great. Just a high level view. <laughs> yeah. Enough to, I think, to get people to pique their interest if they, if it's not peaked already about their nervous system yeah. and what it means to go in and, and do deep work or heal or, um, do emotional releasing and sure. why it actually matters so much to our life moving forward. Sure. Sure. So I'll, I'll try and give practical examples. So this feels somewhat relatable, but, um, let's say someone is, uh, I, I can, maybe I can use breath work as, a, as an example. Mm -hmm. Um, if, if I'm watching someone breathe and their breath is, is not really going down into the belly or the pelvis, um, that's a good indicator that, they're, they're kind of not feeling safe in their body and they're not feeling grounded. And from there, it's possible to infer it's, it's likely that they had some sort of childhood experience where they weren't safe. And maybe there were very good reasons for that. Maybe, you know, alcoholic parents or, or abuse, whatever it is, but their, their body and their nervous system learned that it, it wasn't safe in certain environments. And so this very effective kind of protective strategy comes in place to keep them safe. And the challenge is that these strategies are no longer so useful when we're kind of sovereign adults mm -hmm. and we almost have to unlearn these strategies or, or kind of retire these protective parts of ourselves and remind them that it actually is safe to be your full authentic self as you were, you know, as a child. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the, the, the art and science of this, of, of somatic bodywork is, uh, helping the body to feel a sense of safety in whatever, whatever the state is. And sometimes that will mean kind of deliberately eliciting certain challenging memories from childhood or certain experiences so that you can re-experience that from a place of of safety and love and allow that part of yourself to be reintegrated. So you're, so you feel more, more whole and more able to, to be your full self. Thank you. Yeah. So to just sort of summarize, we go through life. We are born into this world. Uh, we start experiencing challenging moments and it's just inherent. We all have it. It's part of the human mm -hmm. journey. Mm -hmm. It might be, um, you know, needing a hug in one moment to be soothed while you were scared and maybe you didn't get the touch that you needed while you were a child and that imprinted into your nervous system. And there was an incomplete, uh, cycle that wanted to happen then, mm -hmm. but your body held on to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then throughout life, just more experiences start to compound mm -hmm. and, until we learn how to be emotionally fluid and until we learn how to, you know, soothe and ask for what we need and complete these reflexes, mm -hmm. we're, it's like we're operating in a system that just has all these kinks, I guess is what mm -hmm. you called it earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And I think it's Joe Hudson, the performance coach that you interviewed on your podcast talks about literally like hoses. If you try to put water through a hose and it's kinked, it doesn't really work very well. And so our nervous system, our emotional systems are like these hoses Mm-hmm. And this process, breath work being one of the tools, helps to smooth out those lines mm-hmm. so that things can just process. Mm-hmm. It's not like we want to build a, it's not like we're trying to bubble wrap our life so that hard things don't happen. We're actually building a greater capacity to be with those things mm-hmm. and be less impacted mm-hmm. by them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Beautifully put. And just to, to riff off that, um, I think the the example of a kink toes is, is really helpful. And our hoses can be kinked in one of two ways. They can be kinks where they are um, repressed. So my example with, with anger, I just didn't feel ever safe to express anger. But other people, it might be kinked where they just go into rage at like the drop of a penny. Mm. And again, when they're in that rage, they're still not feeling the energy of anger. It's another way. It's another avoidance strategy mm. in some ways. And so there are there are some people who... Um, let's use the example of the lady who maybe was unable to feel safe, um, in her body. There's a good chance that they will then project that out into the world and say, you know, the world is not safe. The world is an unsafe place to be, but actually it's more, it's more of a somatic feeling that then gets mapped onto a story of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's an- another kind of practical example of how the stories of the world are also a kind of a mirror or a reflection of the the state of our own nervous system. Mm, that's really interesting. And, and it makes me want to go back to you being 19 years old and traveling through Southeast Asia. Mm. And you were in this state of wonder and awe and serendipity in beautiful mm. conversations mm. and how you clearly were experiencing a nervous system that could receive that type of input, mm. that that was a match. Mm-hmm. If you were an angry, bitter, um, person or felt a lot of that chances are if you were traveling through those same areas you would find things to complain about and oh this is so hot and the food's not good and you know (laughs) the traffic and the noise like all of that actually might be happening you know there might be a lot of loud traffic noise and you're having a beautiful conversation but what you're actually fully receiving and paying attention to is that beautiful conversation Mm. yeah exactly and and i think you know we've all We've probably met people who, you know, everywhere they go, they manage to find other angry people. <laughs> it's like, mm. or things to be angry or about. Be, exactly. And at a certain point, it's like, well, that's probably a reflection of your own internal state to some degree. Exactly. Mm. So I'd love to talk a little bit more about breath work, which mm-hmm. is this fascinating modality that you have found yourself completely engrossed in and immersed in. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, this overarching umbrella of breath work. And I think a lot of people around the world are starting to become more aware of breathing practices, Mm -hmm. maybe through pranayama and yoga or through different meditation apps like Calm and Headspace. And even our eight slate mattress app has a breathing section. And so, but breath work is really just a a category. Mm -hmm. And then you do a very specific type called facilitated breath repatterning. Mm -hmm. So can you speak a little bit to the difference between those two camps mm-hmm. and what it is that fascinates you so deeply about FBR? Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I also want to acknowledge it, it is very confusing because like breathwork as a category means lots of different things. Um, and, and I guess 
before I start, I just love for maybe listeners to kind of begin to be more curious about how their breath is impacting their their state in moment to moment. Um, so the two main categories of breath work are in, on the one side, there's, there's like pranayama, there's Wim Hof, which a lot of people have probably heard of. And these are practices for using different breathing patterns or rhythms to change your state. So Wim Hof is a very kind of upregulating, activating breathing practice, whereas something like uh, alternate nostril breathing or humming or, tr- or triangular breathing, which people use before they free dive, for example, is a very calming and relaxing breathing practice. And that will activate the, the parasympathetic nervous system. Um, so that's kind of one camp, which is consciously shifting your breathing pattern to achieve a certain desired nervous system state. And then there's the other kind of big category of breathwork, which um, FBR or facilitated breath repatterning is one, but there's also rebirthing, there's holotropic breathwork, there's um, transformational breathing. And what these practices do is is uh, they get you to breathe in a certain way to elicit an altered state of consciousness in which there is greater access to to the subconscious and therefore to these incomplete reflexes and traumas that we were speaking to. And so so FBR is uh it's derived from conscious connected breathing which which simply means breathing in a full vibrant inhale and then a relaxed soft exhale. And if you if you're lying down um there's there's also music playing at the same time and if, usually within 5 to 10 minutes you'll start to notice a and slightly altered state and in this state these these kind of incomplete reflexes can arise and with skilled facilitation and a kind of safe environment and safe container they can be they can be completed um and yeah i mean, I mean perhaps you'd like to share a little bit of your experience um being both my guinea pig as i was going through the training and also in in some of these breathwork circles yeah definitely so bit of background, Johnny completed 400 hours uh, through Breathwork Bali led by Ed Dangerfield in in Bali. And that is a large reason why we were living in Bali last year. Um, and what was very cool is being on the periphery of that training and getting to experience, you know, you trying things out. Yes, getting to be a guinea pig and then also attending those circles. And what's cool about the breathwork circles there is that they kind of give you the same camaraderie as those plant medicine circles we were talking about earlier, where you get to go to an intentional place to feel and Mm -hmm. um, release stored energy, and then also be seen, witnessed, and held and loved by other people Mm -hmm. who are doing the same thing. And I think that's a really big aspect uh, to this type of work is doing it with others. and I've also had really profound experiences one-on-one with a practitioner to get more of that individualized attention. Mm-hmm. And yeah, what it, what it's meant for me, like I said, about a year ago, I probably, if you asked me, Hey, tell me about your nervous system. I couldn't tell you anything, to be honest. <laughs> be like, I think it's there, <laughs> right? Super disembodied from that perspective. Mm-hmm. And through breath work, I have through uh, FBR specifically, I've been able to feel, um, what lives below my neckline (laughs) with greater ease (laughs) and to process and feel these larger emotions for me of which it's been, uh, 
anger and rage are really big for me. Um, and grief, sadness, and contentment. And then also on the other side of the spectrum, joy, bliss, love, um, and, and deep relaxation. Mm -hmm. So it's a journey, right? There's an arc to it. There's a peak and then there's a come down and a, and a phase of relaxation. And I think for me, it's, there's always interesting journeys specifically. And I, I don't want to go exactly into the specifics of what happens inside of us in one journey, but cumulatively over time, this practice has helped me to feel more comfortable expressing my emotions. I feel just lighter and clearer. Mm -hmm. um, there seems to be a correlation between releasing those emotions, completing those reflexes, and also like working through neuroses and becoming a more stable human with mm. access to my creativity. Mm. And for me, I know that some of my kinked hoses have been the hoses that allow for creativity to come through. Mm. And that's been a very stifling process for me. I mean, I tried to start this podcast last summer and then completely shut it down and went into like a creative shutdown mm. for about 10 months. And it's been truly, I've had to go through a healing journey to get back in touch with my creativity so I could feel safe expressing myself out in the world. And I know that one of the reasons for that is because it wasn't safe to express my fullness when I was a child, mm. whether that was at home or in school. And I needed to become more tame, more docile, muted, whatever it is to fit in and stay in a state of safety. Mm. And so breathwork journeys and learning about my nervous system has allowed me to actually connect with my creative cycles in real time. And what's so cool now, like this is so cool. You know, here I am in this podcast and this morning, knowing that we were going to record this interview, I went into a state of shutdown. Mm. The old version of me, the past version of me would have listened and, and obliged that shutdown completely and said, Oh, clearly I'm not meant to do this. We're not going to have this episode. Nope. I'm, I'm, I'll go get a job. You know, whatever, yeah. the, whatever the thing is, the stories that would emerge from that. Yeah. But having more awareness of my nervous system now, I just said, Oh, I, you know, I'm in a state of, I don't actually know all the words fully, but I'm in a state of like ventral, ventral vagal. Sure. Of sympathetic. And, oh, yeah. um, I'm going to go do my practices. So I meditated. I did a different type of emotional clearing practice. I did a small little breathwork practice with myself different than FBR mm. and was able to bring myself back in to resonance with this creative vision. Mm. And so instead of jumping off the ship, I just took the ship a little slower mm. and got myself back on. Um, and that, I, I mean, that, that is life changing right there. Mm that because my dreams are so big and edgy and confronting, mm. um, I have to gradually learn how to hold them in my nervous system. Mm. And that I feel like you and I could talk about creativity yeah. in the nervous system. It, it's, for hours. it's beautiful to witness. And I want to just add one more thing to that, which is this is actually the second time we're recording this this morning. And, uh, the microphone that we were using ran out of battery about an hour and a half into our first conversation. <laughs> and when we realized this, um, we both laughed 
and and that would have been another opportunity mm. where had you you know had that story of like oh it's not meant to be or you know excuses could have easily come in to be like oh you know maybe I'll do this next week or whatever it is but you were like no like let's let's record this again yeah, <laughs> let's, let's go, go for it shake it off go for round two eat some granola round recalibrate uh huh yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you shared that story. It wasn't necessarily going to emerge in this episode. Yeah. It's, it truly is, um, a before and after type moment in life when you learn how to gauge the current status of your nervous system. Mm -hmm. And so that's like a level 10 ninja move, as we like to call it. We're in here doing ninja training. How can I be aware of what's actually happening inside of my body at any given moment? But then also to bring it back to facilitated breath repatterning and the amazing work that you and the rest of your cohort and team over in Bali are doing and researching and learning and then hopefully bringing out to other parts of the world mm. um, is it's like going in with the excavator and doing the deep work on the last 33 years <laughs> when I didn't have these skills. So the skills I have today are helping to uh, prevent future emotional debt mm -hmm. to be developed. It's, it's just processing life more in real time. Life's not going to stop. So I do need to do that. And I also need to look back and like clear mm. out what had happened before. Mm. And this process seems to help with both. You're developing a greater capacity mm -hmm. to hold more of life. Mm -hmm. You're unkinking those hoses so you can continuously be more fluid mm -hmm. and you're doing some of the, the deep work that already happened maybe decades prior. Mm. Yeah, totally. And and one of the one of the other kind of really cool side benefits of this is when when you notice and, and I remember specifically when this this flip switched for me, when I noticed that I was triggered, I was like, Oh cool, I'm gonna go do a breathwork journey and see what this is actually about. Because it's not about the thing that I think it is. It's not about like whatever conflict we were going through or whatever work thing was coming up. Um and almost every single time there is something that gets cleared or re-experienced from early on in my life and it's such a it's such a beautiful reminder also not to take the the challenges in life too seriously mm. and to have some degree of like of healthy distance from whatever's going on and to have in the back of my awareness of like time and time again when i've been hijacked or triggered for some reason and then gone, gone, gone into a journey or some kind of process and be like, oh, it's actually not about that thing. It's like mm -hmm. something completely different. Mm -hmm. And the more that you go through that, I think the more just trust builds up as well. And the more that there's almost like a sort of curiosity starts to come online about like, oh, like, I wonder why I'm feeling this like shame or, you know, whatever it is. And that's for me, that's such a enormous shift to the, the, the human that I was in my, in my early twenties. Yes, I can speak to that both in, in your journey, even over the last two and a half years, mm -hmm. our journey together and how we process life as a couple and, and my own. And I mean, just the other day, we were kind of in housing transition and I looked at you and I was just like, there's so much rage in me right now. And it was like, <laughs> you know, and it was really intense and it was so much charge. And I felt like the incredible Hulk and I, I noticed, I was like, and I don't need to direct it at you. It's not about you. I might be finding things about what's happening in our life that I could say, well, it's, a, it's about the transition. It's about the fact that we need to move on a weekday, blah, 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 blah. But really this was just 
life brought me a set of circumstances to elicit this type of energy and emotion. Mm. And the more, um, non-attached I was to its meaning, the more I could just allow it to move through me. Mm. And, and I did, and it's still, it's uncomfortable, right? It's uncomfortable to fully sit there and feel your rage at 10 a.m. on a Tuesday. Like, <laughs> come back later. But whatever practice, I think, you know, we, we went for a dip in the cold creek and I went and laid in bed alone and eventually tears came. And then actually beneath the rage was sadness. And then I don't know what they were attached to. No story came up. It was beautiful. Mm. Let the tears come. And then I come back into life. And I actually felt more liberated and real mm. than prior to the rage coming. Cause it kind of builds up over time. Mm -hmm. And by the time you're aware of it, it's actually been building for a bit of time. Yeah. Yeah. It's like letting off the steam. And, um, one distinction that, that Joe Hudson makes that I, that I love is like, try not to direct your anger at someone or at mm. something and the same with sadness as well, but just allowing it to be expressed mm. is like the, the cleanest way for it to come through. Really any emotion I'm finding, even, mm -hmm. even joy. Like I would be lovely to project my joy onto you and say, you make me joyful, it's but actually that's very disempowering. <laughs> it's still not healthy. Like, the, you know, the phrase you make me happy or you're responsible for my happiness is like, yeah. absolutely not so run away, <laughs> totally run away or go take some emotional processing classes together. Because the more that we can own our own emotional experience, mm. the more sovereignty and freedom we actually get with that. And then the more clean our relationships can become. Ah, oh, um, okay. So this has been just such an incredible widespread conversation. Um, there's one slightly meatier topic that I want to talk about, and then we'll end with some rapid fire questions and close. Let's do it. Thanks, Johnny. Okay. So, um, on this note of being present with the energy and the emotions that are moving through us, and we've talked about partnership as one way to elicit that and, and be with that and there will be a future episode where we totally dive deep into that between us. Um, but we've called partnership an arena. Mm -hmm. You know, we show up and we're in the arena together. I think that's a Brene Brown quote <laughs> of get in the arena. And there's another arena that you've been playing in, and I have not been there with you, mm -hmm. uh, that seems to have been really transformational. And that's the arena of men's work. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could speak to what exactly men's work is and what it's meant for you in your journey. Mm. Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you. Um, well, I guess I'll preface by saying that, uh, I think I resisted this for, for quite a while. And, and I, I would say that I probably haven't had many meaningful male friendships for probably most of my life up until kind of the last, last few years at least. And, um, what I experienced through, through men's work, which is essentially a kind of a way of saying, men gathering in order to be real with each other is kind of how I think about it and to kind of um, use each other to, to work on themselves and to kind of have loving, compassionate reflections back to each other. Um, so for me, this is, this is looks like being part of uh, men's circles. I started one in Brighton a few years ago and then more recently in Bali joining a circle of um, seven really amazing men and just kind of having that like weekly drumbeat of showing up every Monday morning and 
deeply checking in with how I'm doing. And then um, kind of like we were talking earlier about the the container and the, the safety to kind of bring my full self to that, that circle has, has meant a huge amount. Um, and then both taking part in and leading certain men's retreats, um, have also just been almost like sand pits for accessing the full spectrum of human emotion that is maybe specific to, um, men in some ways. So there were some exercises where we, we kind of embodied the dark masculine and we were given permission to express our rage and mm. the pain we were carrying and the anger against whether it was father figures or kids who bullied us at school mm. and just creating containers for that to really be allowed and be welcomed and to feel a sense of pride of being a man, I, I think mm. was a big thing. In, in the world today, I think it's fairly popular to almost be like bashing on men and, you know, mm the masculine is responsible for a lot of harm that we see in the world, but it's also generative and beautiful when it's in its kind of healthy expression. And I think that's what I got to, I'm beginning to witness in myself and in others is this real generative, beautiful potential for healthy masculine expression. And, and, and through working with, with archetypes and things like that, kind of understanding, um, you know, what that looks like and what does it mean to be a like a healthy embodied man today and there's there's not that many role models I, I don't think in certainly not when I was growing up and not really in the public kind of sphere mm. yeah I guess if we're looking to politics and media and entertainment mm-hmm. well, <laughs> it's like a shadow fest <laughs> yeah yeah there's a if if those are the people who are dictating what we all grow up to be like I think I can see why we're in some of the predicaments that we're in. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that so much. And, you know, I, I can obviously share being your partner and, and receiving you coming back home on the other side of these men's circles and mm-hmm. also the week long men's retreat that you did in Bali. I think you truly shifted in so many ways mm-hmm. and, um, it helped us cultivate deeper connection between us. Um, but also just how you approach your work, how you're approaching your Dharma, your creativity. Mm-hmm. I think on the other side of that retreat, you came back and started playing your guitar more. Mm-hmm. There was a liberation in your expression. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. I mean, there've been so many shifts. I think another one that comes to mind is, um, say working with the archetype of the warrior and, exploring the difference between being nice versus being kind mm. and really recognizing that I had been conditioned, um, to kind of be, be nice and to, and to people please and to, to not, not rock the boat in certain ways. And I really understanding that, that genuine kindness, um, like it might cause pain in the short term, but if it's from a, a loving place, that's actually, appreciated and i think can create more trust as well i think we've probably experienced this in our partnership as well that there is the the trust of of like saying the thing even if it'll be painful to to say or to receive Mm. Um. absolutely and and, and, you know the whole concept of this podcast is about rewilding and and getting back to our wild generative state of being is not the people pleasing pushover nice guy Mm -hmm. that guy sucks 
right? That guy's got a lot of work to do to, to really own his own self leadership. Mm -hmm. And same here. I mean, I people pleasing, good girl, perfect princess, all of those things Mm -hmm. don't ever step out of line with your words and only say that, which is nice. Mm -hmm. And it's been a huge journey of it still is continuing. And I think this podcast is actually going to be a big part of that, of learning that it is safe to express authentically. Mm -hmm. And it is authentic to be angry at times. It is authentic to be sad or to create boundaries. Mm -hmm. Um, And it can all be done with love Mm -hmm. as the, the backbone energy to it. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. And um, I know that you've been exploring the kind of wild feminine archetypes as well. And one of the reasons I love archetypes is because they're almost, they're very accessible images that I think epitomize some of these emotions that might get stuck in certain ways. Mm -hmm. So the ones that I tend to work with are the king, warrior, magician, lover. And you can quite easily map these onto different emotions where the warrior is determination and, and anger and grit the lover is like our capacity to receive beauty or wonder or, or like joy, curiosity. The magician is our capacity to use our minds, to create things, to use words, to write poetry, these kinds of things. Um, and the king is, is like the, the one who organizes all of them and is connected to something higher than ourselves, Mm -hmm. like our sense of purpose or mission. Mm -hmm. And so it's, I can understand why it would be, abstract for some people but i think it for me it's a very tangible way to explore these different parts of myself and really understand like where where am i sometimes showing up in shadow or where are more immature parts of myself Mm -hmm. kind of coming forth Mm, i love that and i really just want to empower everybody listening that all of the things that we've been talking about on this podcast including now archetypes like it is a journey to get into relationship with them Maybe there's some people that the moment they hear about an archetype as like a way of knowing themselves, it resonates and it lands. Mm -hmm. It took me years, you know, and it reminds me of like when you brought me David White poetry (laughs) or you brought me the mythology of Martin Shaw, like Mm -hmm. it almost felt like a foreign language that I couldn't even understand. It it wouldn't permeate through some wall and barrier inside of me. And the more, the more I just engage with it, the more I get curious about it, the more I read the books and just mm-hmm. keep clearing and healing, mm-hmm. the more these things actually start to strike deeper truths. Yeah. And I can't quite intellectually describe why, mm-hmm. but now archetypes are a very visceral experience for me, mm-hmm. but they weren't when I first came into contact with them. Yeah. And so we develop relationships with these things. And the other thing I wanted to say is looking at masculine energies. What I love that you said is there's a lot of like man hating in the world right now. Man and masculine energies are two different things. Mm -hmm. Um, And depending on who you talk to, and this is a fairly controversial statement uh, that I know our mentor from afar, Bill Plotkins, he, he believes this and it feels true to me is that it almost doesn't matter if you're in a man's body or a woman's body or a non you know, gender conformist body or whatever it is your orientation is to gender, we all have masculine and feminine energies. So I have an inner man and you have an inner woman. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think on your men's retreat, you guys also had an afternoon mm-hmm. of exploring your inner feminine yeah, and totally. your inner woman. It's and it's so healing for us to connect with both of those. 
um, we have to connect with both of those to, to be whole. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I think, um, maybe a, a shadow of the feminist movement is that women are then finding their way into like an unhealthy masculine to some degree and almost like perpetuating the same challenges that they're rallying against. And, and for men, I think there is a disconnection from their feminine and from their lover. And so that then leads to more of a propensity towards like unhealthy masculine expression. If we're not connected to our hearts mm. or to our the more tender sides of ourselves and, and, and really the capacity to receive as well. I think that's a big part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. Um, hmm. This topic, I feel like we could talk about for a really long time, but I am conscientious of time and would love to wrap by asking you a couple of quick rapid fire more like statements than questions. And it's a topic that I had a lot of fun titling and it's called rewilding Johnny. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, because I've spent so much time with you and I've really gotten to know you quite well, I've identified five different areas of life mm. that have seemed to play a role in your rewilding journey. And some mm. of these might be surprising. Uh, but as I've witnessed you in these roles and spaces, you seem to become more Johnny, mm. more alive, more expressed, more authentic. And so I just want, I'm just going to name them and whatever comes to mind, whatever like reflection or comment comes to mind, just let us know what that is. Okay. Okay. That's okay. So, uh, the first one is playing guitar and singing. How has it brought me more life? It's not necessarily a question, but sure. Like, um, that was a little abstract. Yeah. I think it's, it's been edgy for me to uh, practice singing. I hired a singing instructor a guitar and singing teacher in Bali. And the first time that he's like, okay, like sing a song. <laughs> I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> um, and so both finding my way back into, um, I, I think I had a story that I, I couldn't sing because at school I was in the choir and blah, blah, blah. Um, so I was afraid of, I think, singing in public and actually through, through ceremonies and, and things, just really reconnecting with how much I love music and that desire to, to use my voice and to sing. And, and, you know, even if they're simple chords, it's still, I still enjoy the experience. And so I think I've been gradually cultivating that aspect of my liveness through guitar and song. Very cool. Yeah. And also actually through us as well. I think it's something that I've really enjoyed like playing the guitar. And then we've gone into these like improvised kind of solo riffs, which have been very fun, mostly just to witness. <laughs> they're very fun. They're spontaneous. They're joyful. They're playful. And yeah. I think joyful and playful and leaning into those energies is really important. Yeah. Thank you for pulling that out of me too. Singing has always been one of my edges and it comes out a lot when I'm around you and mm. that feels very liberating. I'd love to hear it on the podcast at some point. Sure. Not today. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the next topic uh, is meditation retreats. Mm. I think I didn't really know what meditation was until I attended a meditation retreat. Um, 
there are three that really come to mind for me. The first was the Vipassana that I think we mentioned earlier. Um, the second was a, a meta retreat at Spirit Rock in California, which was about, um, cultivating loving kindness and really, really realizing that something like empathy and loving kindness, it is like a muscle that you can train. And that if you spend eight hours a day for 10 days in a row, cultivating these feelings and these thoughts, they become very strong and very powerful. And that ripple lasted for, I think, many months after that retreat. Mm-hmm. And I think still lasts to today. Um, and then the third one was the, the one that we did together in Redaya in Mazinte, where we, we did a 10 day silent retreat, uh, followed by 10 days and five days in the dark room and, and contemplating death on the final day was, I think, one of the, one of the more profound moments of my life and, uh, and how that led to, uh, proposing to you and to kind of deciding to, to get married and then having a ceremony 12 days later or whatever it was. <laughs> mm-hmm. mm. I remember when we were first starting to envision our life together you said, I need to go on at least one 10 day meditation retreat a year. Mm. Does it still feel like a, an intention or an important part of life for you? It does. It does. And, uh, we have not yet gone on a retreat this year. <laughs> no, it'll be two years since December. Yeah. I've been on a Vipassana this year. Have, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I think for me, it feels like a full kind of a full reset, both like a, a dopamine reset, just kind of time to myself, spaciousness and zero expectations or, or obligations except for sitting in meditation for 14 hours a day yeah but yeah <laughs> <laughs> which can be i think heaven or hell depending on who your orientation towards and the practice both, both at the same time totally mm-hmm. yeah um really quick what you talked about with the meta retreat it reminds me of the the book that's downstairs on depression i mm-hmm. forget what it's called johan harry lost connection lost connection i just flipped to a section on uh the phrase sympathetic joy mm. and he was sharing a, a friend who compersion compersion yeah and this cultivating the the sense of joy for other people's mm-hmm. success or happiness mm-hmm. or joy and how at first it's really uncomfortable depending on who you bring to mind, but starting with starting with someone you love deeply and you really genuinely want to see them happy in in the world and then gradually moving to people who you don't like or who you sort of want to see fail. And it's so hard to acknowledge that in yourself. Mm. It's very edgy Mm -hmm. to say like there might be people like that all the way, you know, to all of humanity. And with she's the woman in the book said 15 minutes a day of doing that. And it helped to heal her anxiety and her depression Mm. and really shift her way of, um, relating to herself and her own levels of success Mm. and genuinely improving all of her relationships. Mm. It's actually something I'd love to share just, just briefly. Um, the, so this practice of metta was taken from the Tibetan tradition and in Tibet, they, they actually start with the self. They like begin by cultivating and wishing loving kindness towards yourself. Mm-hmm. And when this practice was kind of brought over to the West, they had to invert it. So they like begin with someone else, like your puppy or someone that you find easy to love. 
then work on to someone neutral, then someone you find challenging, and then yourself. <laughs> Is that because in the West we hate ourselves so much? Just, or There's something unique to Western culture where there is this, it is much harder for us to find that sense of self-compassion and self-love, Wow. which for whatever reason in Tibet, where these practices were kind of created, that was not the case. That's so interesting. Yeah. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. Okay. So the next one is writing poetry. <laughs> How has writing poetry brought you deeper into yourself? Hmm. I think my first poems came from the process of grief. Um, they did actually. The, the very first one I wrote was on, um, on the plane back from Portugal the day after I, the same day that I found out the news about Sophie. And it was just a few lines. And for me, poetry was my way of alchemizing, I think, what I was feeling and using words to express these, the depths of things that I'd never really felt before. And then it became a way of sharing that and also being seen in that as well by sharing these poems through, through my newsletter or to friends, things like that. And, uh, yeah, I think that, um, probably the writer who's shaped my life more than any other has been David White. And he talks about this idea of the poetic imagination. And, and I think that poetry is, it's less of an act and more a way of seeing and being with the world. Mm. Um, I think you could also say maybe wild imagination where you feel more connected to the, the more than human world. And poetry is more just a, an attempt to express that, although the words themselves never quite get there. So there is always this tension of like, you can never quite express the thing that you're trying to say through words. They're these kind of like blunt tools to mm -hmm. point to the, the thing that you're feeling or the place that you're, that you're at. Um, but it's still fun to try. Yeah. <laughs> it's the finger pointing at the moon. Exactly. Don't, don't get stuck on the finger. Yeah. But the finger can be beautiful as well. Of course. Of course. <laughs> I remember yeah, when you brought poetry into my life as an adult, I actually have a history of poetry as a child, but when you brought David White and other writers into my life and just feeling so lost, I was like, I don't get it. Mm. And I, it, it's like, it had to work on me. I gradually opened. Mm -hmm. And then on my vision quest last year, our, my awesome guide had what I call her tattered book of poems. And it was literally this like manila folder full of cutouts of poems and printer paper and scratch paper. And she was flipping through it every day, all day, just being like, what's the right poem for this moment. Mm. And while we were in the wilderness, having removed ourselves from modern world and stimulus and dopamine, these poems, it's like, it was like drinking water. Mm -hmm. You know, you could take it in, you could feel it moving through you. Mm -hmm. And I, I got it. I was like, I understand the space that these writers are inhabiting and mm -hmm. where they're trying to bring us to as well. Mm -hmm. Just feels increasingly more challenging when we are hyper-connected and hyper-stimulated. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I, like, I, I think of the great poets as almost, they're like explorers or adventurers of consciousness and they go to these outer realms these wilder places these altered states and they then report back through through words and we can then 
attempt to access those same places in the same way that um zen koans are these kind of words which are given and if contemplated for long enough they they do their work on you mm. and unlock the same state of consciousness as the the zen master who created them i'm noticing a theme here with letting poetry work on you letting words work on you and letting emotions and feelings work on you yeah, exactly. we don't have to work on these things right. it's so much easier you can just allow because it's already there yeah it's not easier it's not yeah. easier <laughs> but it, it's less it's, efforting it's the only way yeah. it's a different kind of easy definitely yeah well, i guess a different kind of hard <laughs> <laughs> so uh funny enough the the fourth thing that i was going to bring up was david white mm. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you can speak to uh, the fact that you've interviewed David White on your podcast oh, yeah. and you got to do a walking tour with him in Ireland. And what has he meant to you? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, just something about, I think I first came across his work through the book, The Three Marriages. Um, and the, the way he, he just writes in a way that is unlike any other writer that I come across. And it speaks to both the kind of intellectual skeptical side of me, but also the curious, maybe more spiritually open side of me. Um, and just his capacity to articulate experiences that I'd intuited, but hadn't really kind of put my finger on just like over and over and over again. And then going on this walking tour with him in Ireland and hearing him share his poems from the places they were written when he speaks, it's almost like he, he kind of casts this spell where everyone in the, in the space in the audience is almost in this like altered state of like reverie. And there is this capacity of deep attention that you can't, you kind of can't look away. You can't stop listening. Um, and I just sense that he is someone who has really traveled to a lot of these. He's, he's mapped a lot of this like, inner landscapes that he's he's like a cartographer for the the human psyche mm -hmm. and he's has this extraordinary capacity for describing it and saying things which are very counterintuitive and one of i know one of our favorite books is consolations where he just redefines kind of everyday words in a way that just gets you to be like huh like i'd never thought about it that way mm -hmm. um so yeah i uh and i really admire that he's made a living a very good living for himself as a poet and as, as a writer and as a speaker and sharing these ideas with broader audiences and he's i think he's making poetry more accessible as well mm -hmm. by explaining kind of the stories behind his poems and, and why they why they're relevant mm -hmm. as opposed to just being like you know his poem mm -hmm. but there's more context well thank you for spreading the good word of david <laughs> yeah. and i know that i've also jumped on that train yeah. sending his books to friends and, <laughs> yeah loving his his different talks so my final statement here is letting life hold you mm. Mm. And what i'm really speaking to here is that moment on rick's retreat when he said you can just let life hold you mm. and you probably let out the biggest exhale of your life <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think that really, um, like that's been an exploration for me for a number of years. Um, I, I think that I got very good at doing, at controlling life in different ways. Um, and 
it's it's very challenging to kind of let go and really trust in the flow of life and i think these conversations are probably a good example where there's um when i'm on my podcast there's a bunch of questions that i want to ask and it's almost like a script and it feels scary to divert away from that that script um but at the same time there's this like sense of like it's going to be okay and more and more i'm feeling this sense of being held by the flow of life and trusting that even if i don't know exactly what i'm going to say next the words will come the same is true with writing with the course that i'm doing with nervous system mastery it's like trusting that it is within me and i don't have to have everything mapped out before i begin it's like trusting in the the unfoldment of the process thank you for that so in the spirit of unfoldment Let's wrap by letting listeners know where they can find more information about you and the work that you're doing in the world. We didn't explicitly talk about nervous system mastery. So maybe just giving a slight little sentence plug for that and how they can connect with you. Yeah. Okay. So uh, you can find me at curioushumans.com. You can sign up for the the newsletter and the podcast is there as well. Um, And then nervous system mastery is a a course that I'm, I'm running this November. And it's a five week cohort where we're going to be exploring the nervous system and learning some of these practices for up and down regulation, um, honing interoception, which is our capacity to sense, track and feel our own sensations and emotions, um, redesigning our environment and just really exploring life through the lens of the nervous system. Um, and you can find details about that at nsmastery.com. Um, and otherwise I'm on, I'm on Twitter as well. I'm quite active on Twitter. (laughs) And I will link all of these in the show notes. Cool. And any final words before I end with a quote? No, this has been such a pleasure. I'm glad we did the round two. (laughs) Me too. Me too. This is the learning process. So good. And yeah, just want to also thank you for inspiring me along the way with your podcast journey. You've been podcasting now for close to three years. Mm-hmm. You have just hit your 50,000 download mile marker, which is so exciting. And you've had some of the world's deepest thinkers and most incredible uh, humans, mm. curious humans on the podcast. So thank you for spreading the concept of curiosity and also helping us anchor it into our nervous systems. Mm. Thank you so much. And that I will. Means a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and I will end with a a a brief part of a poem that we both know and a question. The late and great Mary Oliver writes in Wild Geese. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to love the soft animal of your body, love what it loves. So Johnny, what invitation does the soft animal of your body want to make, want to give to listeners as they go further down their own rewilding journey? Mm. I love that line so much. Um, I would say, I would say Learn to feel what curiosity feels like in your body and learn to pay attention to when that like spark or that impulse arises 
and see what happens if you trust it. Like try, try following that impulse and that aliveness. And uh, don't come to me if it gets you in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually an amazing point. Um, this was this will be how I close. So everything that we talked about on this podcast, we mentioned some really cool things like breath work and uh, plant medicine and vision quests and 10 day meditation retreats and also following the impulse of your, of your sparks. Uh, so just wanting to invite everybody to do their research and their due diligence, find practitioners to work with if they feel like it's outside of their own comfort zones, you know, tuning into Johnny's course on nervous system mastery. It is so much better to be, it's not just better. I think it's essential to, to walk alongside others who are a little further ahead and can offer guidance. And so uh, just inviting everybody to get curious about where they are in their journey and how they might be able to support themselves better by joining others. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wild on Purpose. Please think about writing a review and sharing it with your friends. If you'd like to learn more about my leadership offerings or join my newsletter, visit wildonpurpose.co. Lastly, I'd like to thank my podcast editor, Jabril Al-Suhaimi, for helping me weave this audio journey together and all of those who have supported me along my path as a creator. Until next time, stay wild.